Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for tuning in to today's episode. This is our Monday episode, which means it can basically be on any topic that I would like for that week or that you guys have requested or anything that we would just like to learn about doesn't have to really fit a particular topic on thursdays we do the history of each state so we're working through those but today i just wanted to learn about what a sommelier is and how to become one now if you're unfamiliar a sommelier basically means you're an expert in wine and at one point i really was interested in becoming an expert in cheeses and realized that the only career paths there really from what i could tell were purchasing cheese for a cheese shop or owning a cheese shop um you know along those lines and it wasn't super super profitable so i was wondering partly like if a sommelier is more profitable or if they have more career options which it definitely seems like they have a good amount of options if you do reach kind of the the master status so I wanted to research this this week because my brother actually got invited to a wine and food pairing event because one of his friend's dads is training to become a sommelier. Like he's in classes, he knows a bunch of these other sommeliers and they put on this, what seemed like an amazing event to taste food with these special wine pairings. And it just seemed so fun. So I was like, what does that even mean? How do you become a sommelier? What's the process like? And what can you do once you are a sommelier? So that's what we're going over this week and I hope you enjoy. Okay, so let's first kind of set a baseline and talk about what a sommelier is. So a sommelier, the actual word means wine steward. And when you hear the word sommelier, there's a certain level of expertise and just uh, passion, I guess, for wine that goes far beyond a wine waiter. Because a lot of times sommeliers actually work as a wine waiter they'll give specific recommendations for customers and things like that but it's not just a wine waiter it's really uh an expert in the wine it takes years of education and experience you have to know all aspects of wine and how to serve it so things like production history the you know where the grapes come from the regions um, that they can come from the how they are crafted you know all of these sorts of things for all of these different types of wine you get educated in the production history of wine the art of wine and food pairing is another big thing so like the event that my brother was invited to sommeliers should be well known in what flavors would pair well together in wine and food and be able to craft kind of um a certain menu or a certain uh, set of options when it comes to wine and food pairing now, when you are becoming a sommelier or a wine steward, you are really studying viticulture, which means the cultivation and harvesting of grapes. So you might not be actually doing that. You might be eventually, but um, you might not be actually like harvesting the grapes and cultivating the grapes, but you are studying and delving into viticulture, which means really this website says you're really receiving an education of 
history, culture, culinary science, geography, art and creativity, science and health, which does make sense because if you watch, let's say like a documentary about a sommelier or, or just wine in general, these people that are so good at telling what wine this is, where it's from, you have to know things about the climate, um, certain geography and if grapes grown there will taste one way or another. You're really learning a lot about culture, climate, you know, and just the art of creating wine. So it touches a lot of different aspects there when you are actually starting to get this education. So what can a sommelier do in their day-to-day -day life or their day-to-day -day job? So one of them is, I would say pretty obviously, working in retail for a wine shop. So a lot of sommeliers will be hired out by a wine shop and what they will do is like they'll go to auctions or um, you know they'll, they'll be in charge of buying wine for the shop and if the shop is really high end they want really good wine so they'll hire a sommelier to go and look for certain things with the wine so they want to look for a good quality wine they want to look for good vintages like let's say the wine shop really wants to specialize in vintage wine from like a certain set of years from a certain region they're going to go and know the best quality of wine from there what pro uh, producers of wine are the best to get and so they are going to be looking and scouting for really good wines for that wine shop this also has to do with things like labels like people really like labels and feel connected to the branding of certain wines. So not only do they want to get quality wine, but they want to get wine that people will actually purchase for a wine shop. A lot of sommeliers also work as like freelance wine writers so they can critique wines and write about their favorite wines. If they try a new one, they'll write a like a post or a you know, like a blog post or it's probably more official than that, but they'll write an article about this certain type of wine that they have tried or they're recommending. They can own or work at a winery as a winemaker. So naturally, I guess if you're learning so much about how to make wine, where it comes from, the climate that makes it optimal, these things to look at in a quality wine, you're going to have many steps ahead um, if you wanted to go into winemaking. So some sommeliers definitely do that. They open a winery or work in a winery as their winemaker. You can also just work as an expert at a restaurant. So if you have a very, very high-end restaurant and you know people would like to order a dinner and pair it with a nice wine, you would be the expert called out to make a recommendation to them with like, what, what are you feeling, um, you know, eating and I will pair it with wine or coming up with food and wine pairings. So that's more on the service side as opposed to kind of the production side, like being a winemaker would be. But a lot of sommeliers are hired out by restaurants as their wine expert and wine server. And then you can also teach others about wine. There's obviously a lot of wine classes and um, food and wine pairings and things like that. So a lot of sommeliers end up teaching others about wine, which makes a lot of sense because you're so passionate about wine and you want others to be just as passionate about wine as well. So it seems like a pretty good route to go to me. Okay, so what are the responsibilities of a sommelier? This kind of goes 
into which career path you actually choose. Um, but let's talk more about things like in a restaurant. If a sommelier is hired in a restaurant in order to be their personal wine expert, what are your responsibilities in that restaurant? What does a sommelier actually do? So the first one is sampling and assessing wines from all over the globe. Naturally, you want to kind of be on the cutting edge if this is a very, very high-end restaurant and they've hired you to be just the top-notch sommelier. You need to stay current on kind of what's happening, what people are liking in the wine world. So you're going to be sampling and assessing wines from all over. The next thing is you're going to have to select wines to fit a customer's taste and budget. Yes, the best bottle of wine might be like the $30,000 bottle of wine, the $100,000 bottle of wine, but your customer might want to only spend a thousand. How are you going to select a wine that the customer is going to like and also stay within their budget? Because it's not just about picking the most expensive wine. It's about having that balance for the customer so that they are satisfied. The next one is managing inventory and storage. A lot of times sommeliers, you know, this could be a shared responsibility with someone else in the restaurant, but a lot of times they do manage the inventory. They make sure they know what customers tend to drink a lot of. So they need to um, give their recommendations on how much inventory to get so they don't run out of a certain wine, be able to store the wine at the certain like temperatures and um, conditions that's optimal. So they will be mostly in charge of like ordering, managing inventory and storage. Um, they also coordinate with the head chef on recommend on recommended food pairings. So if they get this amazing wine, but there's nothing that would optimally pair with it, they can work with the head chef to make sure that there is something on the menu that they can recommend a food pairing that's very highly recommended. Um, so they always need to make sure that that these wines that they're finding are not just like unique and you can't you don't have to just drink a glass of wine alone. They want it to be paired with food. And then the other thing is if a small A comes, like obviously they are going to be the expert, but the rest of the restaurant staff should be pretty knowledgeable on wine as well in case like they're unavailable or whatever. It's just good to have a lot of redundant uh, information. So a lot of times a sommelier will start training the restaurant staff on just wine basics so they can start making some recommendations. And obviously, again, it takes years and years and years to be the level of expertise, to have the level of expertise as a sommelier would, but they can start building up their wine basics so they can better meet the customer's needs. So that is the process of a sommelier being hired or their responsibilities in a restaurant. Obviously, if you're a winemaker, your responsibilities are going to look different than if you're in a restaurant or different if you're working retail. But I just thought it was good to have an example of practically the job of a sommelier in one of these areas. Okay, so this is the big question that I had is what is the process of actually becoming a sommelier? How does one become a sommelier? Is there one set way to do it? Do you have to set like get these certifications or do this one school? Like what, how do you become a sommelier? So the answer is there is no one way to gain the skills needed to be a sommelier. 
you may have no formal training, which I think that's pretty rare. Um, most people, from what I understand after doing my research, do have some sort of course or class and they get um, these certifications that we'll go over, but you don't actually have to. You can technically be a sommelier and be hired as a wine expert at a restaurant without any accreditations or qualifications. But there are certifications to kind of prove that you have the necessary skills and to stand out to anyone who would hire you. So there's two main providers of certifications for sommeliers. They come from two different uh, companies or establishments. The first one is the Court of Master Sommeliers and the second one is the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. So let's go over CMS first. It's a little bit, it's the less popular of the two, but if you have these certifications, um, employers can be very certain that you do know your stuff. It's still highly regarded, it's just not as common. So CMS, or the Court of Master Sommeliers, was established in 1977, and it was established to encourage the quality standards for beverage service in both hotels and restaurants. The program, uh, there's four programs that are offered. Well, there's probably more classes, but there's like four certifications that are offered. And those classes place an emphasis on technical service skills, um, significant producers, and vintage ratings, product, and tasting knowledge. So it covers a wide variety of things. The one key note here is that this establishment, CMS, focuses a lot more on service skills than the other one, which is the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. This one is a lot about service, and if you want to go into being in a restaurant, serving the wine, like all of that is tested in this program. So it's mostly self-study. There's some face-to-face -face instruction if you would like, but the vast majority is self-study. And they have four certifications that must be completed in order. So the first one is the Introductory Sommelier Certificate. This is a three-day course. It has an exam of multiple choice at the end, and they also have a practical wine service test. So that's just the introduction, like the basics. Think like process of how wine is made. Very basic things with a multiple choice, but it's after a three-day course. They then have the Certified Sommelier exam. This is a three-part exam that consists of a theory paper, a blind tasting, and a practical wine service test. There's usually a period of further study that's needed between the introductory course and this course. You don't necessarily have to have that, but most people need an extra bit of studying between those two. Now, then you move on to the Advanced Sommelier Certificate. This, you know, you self-study on your own, but then there is a five-day program that you can take. Two and a half days are just more training and more information. The final two and a half days are an exam. So you have the theory paper, a blind tasting, and a practical wine service test. Again, it's just more advanced. And then you get your final exam. This is called getting the Master Sommelier Diploma. This is also three parts. They have the theory, practical testing, or practical service uh, 
wait, what I wrote weird notes here. It's, it's the same three parts. It is the theory paper, the tasting and the practical wine service test. So, um, a successful completion of all of these parts can take about three years of study. It is very, very difficult to get this master sommelier test. And just because this is the least uh, popular of the routes to kind of get the that to that level of being a sommelier, doesn't mean it's not extremely, extremely difficult. As of 2019, only 249 people had earned this. At this point now, there are 269 worldwide, and there are 172 in the American chapter. So this program is based in the UK, but there's also an American chapter. So there's a Court of Master Sommeliers America version. So 172 people have gotten to the Master Sommelier Diploma level in America. Again, super, super hard. This takes years to master. You have to do the blind taste testing and and really know just like everything about wine. So it's very highly regarded. Like if you go and you have this on your resume, um, a restaurant will know that you are kind of the cream of the crop of sommeliers. Okay, but the other one is from the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. This is another organization that helps you gain the skills and test you on the skills to become a recognized sommelier. So this, the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, is the largest and most recognized organization for uh, formal education in wines. It focuses mostly on developing systematic tasting skills and product knowledge for significant wines and wine producing regions of the world. So much less or almost no emphasis on serving. It says many sommeliers choose, choose to study for W, they call it WSET, which is wine and spirit education testing or wine and spirit education trust. So if you hear me say WSET, that is, what that means. It's just this organization. So many sommeliers choose to study for WSET qualifications to gain their product knowledge, and they opt to develop service skills on the job. So if you go to CMS and you apply to a restaurant, restaurants know that not only are you amazing at tasting wines, but you are very, very well equipped to actually serve in a restaurant to you have technical service skills with wine. If you apply to a restaurant and you have W set on your resume, they know that you have a formal education in wine. You have amazing tasting skills, which you probably already have with CMS, but you also know a ton and you know the most, I guess, about the wine producing regions and what significant wines are happening or are, you know, popular in the industry. So they're focusing on slightly different things. And for WSET, they do not focus on technical serving skills. So that's just something a restaurant has to consider. Like, okay, they're going to have to learn this skill on the job, which usually isn't, it doesn't sound like too big of a deal breaker because this is still a, I mean, this is the most popular program and super highly sought after in the sommelier world. 
So this too offers four levels of progressive study and they're also designed to be studied sequentially. Um, they can enroll in levels one through three like without completing any other WSET study. So you could technically go into level three, um, but most people go one through three because a lot of people aren't just walking around with like tons and tons and tons of hours of wine study. So most people go one through three. Technically you can get any of those at any point, but then four, um, level four, you have to have studied some other WSET level and passed it. Okay, WSET programs are accredited by the UK government, so there's a big backing to them with the accreditation. And here are the levels. So there's WSET level one. This takes about six hours of study online or in a classroom with an exam comprising of just a multiple choice. So again, these are the very basics. WSET level two requires about 28 hours of study, which is which includes an educator guided online or classroom time and personal study. There's then an exam at the end that is also multiple choice. So we're up to about just like 34 hours of study. So not too bad. And you can become a level two um, WSET certified wine steward. WSET level three requires about 84 hours of study. It includes educator guided online or classroom time and personal study. The exam um, at the end is comprised of a theory paper and a practical tasting test. So this is where kind of the rubber starts meeting the road. You have to taste, you have to get the notes correctly. You have to know you know, where these wines are coming from. They do a theory paper all about wine. So this is much more involved. It's about triple the time that you need to study for the level two certification. Um, so total, if you do level one, two, and three, currently we would be at about 118 hours of study to get to the level three, which is a lot, but also not as much as I would think, like if you're studying for, let's say, I don't know, two hours a week in one, in about a year, just over a year, you would be able to get a level three certification in wine. Like you could do this WSET and get to level three and have taken all three certification classes. So that would be pretty good. But to get the WSET level four diploma in wines, which means you are a certified sommelier, like you are the cream of the crop. It takes over 500 hours of study time, including educator guided online or classroom study and personal study over six units, ranging from viticulture to the business of wine. Examinations vary by unit. So you need to have six units of tests. There's not just one final exam. You have to know like this again, you have to know everything about wine. You're learning how it's made, viticulture, the business of wine, what climates produce what type of wine, vintage wine, typicity of wine, which is like if a French wine tastes like it comes from France, like the type of wine and if it matches the flavors of the type of wine. 
So there's a lot that goes into this 500 hours. This is getting into some serious hours where, you know, if, that, if you do two hours a week there, it's like five years. Um, obviously you can do it in a shorter amount of time if you're just like dedicated to um, studying and getting to know all of that. There's no time, actual time limit. Um, you have to do the 500 hours, but it doesn't say that you have to spread it out over X amount of years. But it's a lot of time dedicated that is, at that point, over 600 hours of studying for wine, like with wine. So you are educated on your wines and you're doing a lot of wine tasting, which would be very enjoyable. But it's also pretty expensive. Like if you're doing these hours of study time and you're understanding the flavors of the wine of certain regions, you're going to want to go and actually taste them. Some of these bottles can get very, very expensive. Now, it doesn't sound like they necessarily have to be, but you're probably going to be spending a decent amount of money to become a sommelier. So, the qualities of wine. Okay, now I could not find, I was hoping to find a list of like, five qualities of wine that every sommelier is trained to look for. Kind of like diamonds, like cut, color, clarity, that sort of thing. I found multiple different lists. Um, and so I'll kind of go, go through the two schools of thought that I found. So I found one list that had six qualities of wine that you must look for. Those are balance, intensity of flavors, complexity, clarity, typicity, and length of finish. Those are the six things that kind of tells you if it's a quality wine. For example, length of finish means like when you sip the wine and you swallow the wine. Does that taste linger in your mouth for a good amount of time? If so, that means it's a higher quality of wine. If it kind of goes away really quickly, that means it's it's a cheap wine and it it was it's not high quality it should be lasting in your mouth um clarity you know like it shouldn't be murky it should be a clear wine um the flavors there should be a lot of flavors going on it shouldn't just be like one note of flavor it should be a little bit complex the the flavor should be intense and then there's these different uh properties i guess of wine and all of those should be balanced. Now this leads me into my other list that I found because another list said that there were four qualities of wine that you should look for. Those are acidity, tannin, alcohol, content, and sweetness. And it talks a lot about how those four need to be balanced in your mouth, which balance is a quality of wine up in the list above. So I think this really falls under the the one quality of balance in the list. And that list of six is a good gauge to go off of or a good checklist to check off a good wine. But when you're talking specifically about balance, there's four different flavors, I guess I would say, or properties that need to be balanced. So it shouldn't be too acidic. It shouldn't be too full of tannins or you shouldn't taste too many tannins at once. The alcohol shouldn't just kick you and burn you, you know, you, it needs to be balanced with the acidity and the sweetness. And then obviously you don't just want 
a wine and tastes like apple juice, you don't want it to be too sweet. So all those flavors together can vary a lot by different wine. Like some wines are going to be sweeter than other wines um, or some types of wine tend to have more tannins or need to have more tannins than other wines. And so it's definitely fine to have variation between those, but they all need to be balanced and they can't be just completely out of whack, essentially. That's probably just the very layman's way of <laughs> explaining that, but they all do need to, you shouldn't be like overwhelmed with any one of those properties when you're drinking a wine. Okay, so what are tannins? Because we've thrown that word around a decent amount. And my brother was actually telling me yesterday that he figured out that he prefers wines with a lot more tannins in them. He likes the feel, I guess, of what it provides with the wine. Um, and I realized once he explained this to me, I have never really liked red wine that much. I, I've never been drawn to red wines. And that's because I didn't like how it made my mouth feel. It makes your mouth almost like your lips are sticking to your teeth. If you have drank red wine, you know that feeling. That is produced because of tannins. And so I realized through him telling me he likes wines with a lot of tannins in them that I do not. I think I'm coming around a little bit more, but usually the reason I don't like a red wine is if it has too many tannins in it is what I'm learning. So what is a tannin? Tannins are naturally occurring, they're a naturally occurring compound that exists inside of grape skins, seeds, and stems. So when they're crushing up all the um, grapes, if they keep the uh, skins, seeds, and stems, the wine is gonna have a lot more tannins in them. Uh, the scientific word for these compounds is called polyphenols. Polyphenols release from the skins, seeds, and stems when they soak in the grape juice, just after the grapes have been pressed and are what give certain wines, such as Cabernet Sauvignons, their characteristic dryness or astringency. So yes, this says that if you feel a sensation, like a drying sensation in your mouth, depending on how dry your mouth feels, you can determine the tannin levels of that certain wine. Now, the proper term for this, if you um, if you experience a wine that does make your mouth feel very dry, you call that wine a tannic wine because it is full of tannins. Okay, <clears throat> what makes a wine have strong or weak tannins depends on how long the juice sits with the skins, seeds, and stems after being pressed. The longer they, you know, all those extra parts of the grapes soak in the juice, the more the tannin... Um, characteristics it says they will impart now I, i'm reading this from a an article all about tannins and wines which i ha will have linked in the show notes if you want to go um look at those but <clears throat> it says this explains why red wines have stronger tannins than white wines when producing a red wine the winemaker wants the skin to impart more color thereby adding more tannins so if you don't soak the grape juice from a red grape in the skins, it's not going to look very red. And you want this nice like burgundy color of a red wine. You know, if you've had like, I mean, I haven't had super nice wines, but if you look at like the $10 section of red wines and they're like 
almost clear kind of they're like very light a light red you know that that's not a very high quality wine the high high quality wines are dark burgundy and part of this is because the juice is soaking with the skins which are red for an extended amount of time well that ends up adding more tannins into <clears throat> the juice that will then become the the final wine <clears throat> so that's why higher quality wines tend to have more tannins in them Tannins are also a natural antioxidant to protect the wine, which is why so many red wines can be amazing at, you know, as they age. Um, if there's a lot of tannins in there, the taste is going to be preserved as a wine ages. The downside of tannins is that sometimes it can give people headaches. They say this is actually really rare. Like, I think my friends and I had a theory that we would get, you know, red wine headaches because of the tannins in them. It's actually very rare and it usually just happens from consuming too much wine in general and not drinking enough water. Um, but some people can be actually like allergic or have a reaction to the tannins in wines and in specifically red wines. Um, so that's good to know, but it is pretty rare. Okay, so then I wanted to know the process of actually properly tasting a wine are there like a certain list of steps that a wine you know a sommelier will go through to see if this is a high quality wine or not so there are some they're pretty kind i would say that they seem obvious but they're more complex than i would think um, because basically you're just using all of your senses you're seeing it you're smelling it you're tasting it um, and then there's some steps kind of in between there. So the first thing you do is you look at the wine. You want to look at the bottle's label. You need to see the variety of wine that you're tasting and <clears throat> the year the wine was created. So what vintage are you looking for? What variety are you about to taste? You can get a lot of hints just from the region that the wine is coming from, the year that the wine was made, and what type of wine it is. So like a Cabernet Sauvignon is going to taste a lot different than a Pinot Grigio, you know, which I think those are different colors. Anyway, I'm still getting into my wine education here, but you get the point. Like you want to know what type of wine you're tasting. So what you're looking for there is the producer, the brand, the variety, the region, <clears throat> what type of grape is used, the year and the alcohol content. <clears throat> The other thing you're looking for just with your eyes is color variances in the wine. So the color can give a hint to the climate and the region where the wine is from. So if you are, if you see a wine that is a white wine, but it looks darker than typical white wines, you know that that, <clears throat> um, might be a, an older wine. It's been aged. White wines get darker as they age and um, and red wines actually get more, get a little bit lighter with age. So you don't want the wine that's like see-through, like the $10 wine, like I was saying, but if you have a very, very aged red wine, it's going to get a little bit darker and a little bit more transparent as it ages. But what I was saying with the, the regions is cooler regions 
tend to produce wines that are paler in color and warmer regions produce more intense color wines. So this is like also plays a part in kind of the blind taste testing. If a sommelier goes and looks at a wine that's, let's say, a Cabernet, if they go and look at that wine and it's paler a little bit than a normal Cabernet that they have, they can take a guess that that is from a cooler region. So it can give you like context clues about where this wine might be from, what year the wine is, because if it's a little bit darker, a little bit lighter, uh, it can it can tell you something about the age. And then um, this says an aged red will change to the garnet color and have a brick red rim that circles the edge of the wine glass. So when it says to look for color variances in the rim of the wine, if there's a variance between the rim of a red wine and it looks more like a brick red color and then it goes, the rest of the wine glass is like a garnet color. That's what it's described as. If you see that color variation, <clears throat> that usually means that the wine is aged. So the best way to see this um, red wine rim variation is to hold the glass at a 45 degree angle and that can help you notice like the rim of the wine and see if it's a different color. If it's all the same color that means it's usually not super aged. Okay so the next thing you do is you swirl the glass. Swirling the glass I thought I mean I knew there was some sort of benefit but I just did it kind of to be fancy but what that does is it aerates the wine, air is able to hit more surface area of the wine, and it releases the aromas of the wine to make them easier to identify. It also, when you swirl it and then you stop swirling it, the remnants, I guess, of the wine will drip down back to like the main glass of the wine, and those are what creates, or those are called wine legs. So they look like tears on the inside of the glass. Now, having a wine that has like quote unquote good legs is not really an indication of the quality of the wine, but it tells the taster the wine's viscosity, the sugar, and the alcohol levels. So again, if you swirl a glass with, I'm, I don't know which way it goes, but if you, you swirl a glass and then you see the wine legs, you can tell the difference between like a very low alcohol content wine legs and a very high alcohol content wine legs. You can also tell sugar and viscosity. So all those things together can, again, if you know, if you have in your mind like a catalog of thousands and thousands of wines and you know the alcohol content, sugar, and viscosity of each of these wines, you can compare those properties with what you're looking at in the wine legs that you are currently tasting. Um, so again, a lot of context clues about what type of wine this might be if you're doing like a blind taste test, which we'll talk about blind taste tests in the section of misconceptions about sommeliers because many sommeliers don't actually do these wine tests um, or blind taste tests, but it can still give you, you know, an indication of what wine you're drinking. The smell. Okay, so then you smell the wine, you bring it to your nose, inhale deeply, and it says you try to identify hints or fruit, hints of fruit or spice. So this one's pretty straightforward. After you swirl it to release the aromas, you're gonna wanna smell it and try to identify what's in the wine. This seems like a very hard part to me. Um, 
I don't know. We've tried to do like blind taste tests, just me, my husband, and my brother, and um, tried to identify which wine is which. It's hard, even if you're, I don't know. We bought like a very cheap wine and very expensive wine, and then like a middle priced wine. And even just those three, just to guess which one's expensive and which one's not expensive, sometimes we like got a messed up. So it seems hard. And then taste, you take a small sip, you swish it around in your mouth. They say you want to introduce it to all parts of your mouth. So each part is going to notice some different things that can help give you hints about the wine. So the front gets more of the sweetness of the wine. The sides are more responsible for recognizing the acidity of the wine. And then the center and the back uh, tell you about how dry it is, the bitterness, the tannins that are in the wine. And then once you swallow it, your throat and like, you know, the kind of uh, back of the mouth and throat will tell you how much alcohol is in the wine. And then the last step is to savor it. This is where kind of the quality of the wine, like a big part of the quality is told because again, it should have like a longer lasting aftertaste. If the taste immediately goes away, you know, that's not a super high quality wine. Okay, so there are some misconceptions about sommeliers that I found on this website that I thought were interesting to note. So it says, many of us marvel at the remarkable blind taste testing abilities seen in wine documentary films. When a person spends five minutes with a glass of wine and rattles off the notes, the alcohol content, the grapes, the region, the wine producer, and vintage year, it seems nothing short of magic. Now, blind tasting is one of the skills that is required to pass the the master sommelier exam. It says though that most sommeliers don't hold that title and no one cares really like practically about blind taste testing. Like if a sommelier who's not this this master sommelier title, if they're hired in a restaurant, just like a normal, well-qualified sommelier, if they're hired in a restaurant, customers don't care if you're blind taste testing, they just want to drink a good wine. Their managers, their employers, the chefs don't care if they can blind taste test a year. They just want to know that they have a good food pairing with their wine. So like the vast, vast, vast majority of sommeliers never have to really do this blind taste testing. It's more of just like an impressive thing. Um, It says another misconception is that being a sommelier means being a wine snob. Though it takes years of education and experience to become one, the goal of the wine expert doesn't involve bravado or intimidation. Instead, it's more about getting inside the customer's head to make sure that they experience the best wine possible to suit the moment. If a diner insists they don't like red wine, a sommelier will suggest the best white wine or rosé to go with their steak. Ultimately, the role of the sommelier comes down to helping the customer enjoy and understand wine. So I think that applies for restaurant sommeliers, like ones that are actually working in a restaurant. But I do feel like most sommeliers are going to be wine snobs. How could you not be? If you have spent all this time to learn everything about wines, I feel like you're just going to kind of come off as a snob at least to 90% of people who just want to drink a $15 bottle of like rosé. Um, you are going to have this appreciation, this deep appreciation for wine that inherently a lot of people may not have. So 
I don't know if that's necessarily a misconception, but the point that they're trying to drive home there is like a sommelier is supposed to help a customer. If you're in a restaurant setting, they're supposed to get, you know, meet the customer's needs. And if someone hates a red, they're going to choose the best white, even though as a sommelier, they know like the best pairing may be a red. So it, they just kind of have to put aside some of their pride at some points. Um, okay. Then the last thing I want to talk about with this on this topic, the sommelier topic is the sour grapes documentary. Okay. So there is this documentary that I highly recommend every single person to watch. And it just, it was so good. So it's called sour grapes. I believe it's on Amazon prime. If you want to stream that, but it is this documentary about these very, very high class or very, very high end wine auctions. So it's a ton of sommeliers that get together and they go and they buy their wine for their shop or their personal collection or their client. A lot of sommeliers will actually be hired by very super rich people um, to go to auctions and purchase the wine and bring them back for their own personal wine collection. So this documentary also shows um, the Koch brothers, one of the Koch brothers, he has this like millions and millions of dollar wine collection. And what this documentary dives into though, is there was this whole controversy in the wine world where this guy was kind of a newcomer into the wine scene. He was like a young guy and he, he said, Hey, I want to become like a player in the wine auction industry. And he started buying up all this wine and, and all this. And then at some point he would start reselling his collection. And he started talking about how he had all these crazy vintages, like these wines that were super, super hard to come by. So one guy who got interviewed in the documentary said like, yeah, I was talking to the, to this guy, this newcomer. And he said, um, when's the last time you had like this vintage of a wine or what's the oldest wine you've had? And he goes, Oh, I think the oldest wine I've had was like, let's say 1920. And he said, but it was so hard to come by. And I just like, couldn't get, you know, I can't get my hands on another wine yet from that time period. And this newcomer guy said, Oh, I've had five wines this year that are older than that wine. Like I've had a 1916 and 1918 whatever. So he was just like, everyone was amazed by him. His palate was amazing. He could blind taste as anything. It goes on and on about how amazing he is at wine. Well, turns out he was running this whole counterfeit wine operation where he would go and taste a very, very vintage wine. So let's say he would he would taste a 1920 wine, this very specific wine. And he was so good at tasting that he would taste it, know all the notes of the wine, understand the complex flavors of that wine. Then he would go back, try to duplicate labels, put it on just like a regular wine bottle, and then take cheaper wines with similar properties, mix them together so that it, you know, cause his taste, his palate was so sophisticated and so good that he could take these cheaper wines with similar properties, mix them together and have a very, very convincing counterfeit wine. So people would buy these fake cheap wines for, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes. 
and people were pretty fooled. Like this went on for a long time until slowly this counterfeit wine started unraveling. People would see like a mistake in a label or, you know, certain mistakes that would trigger like a red flag to say this might be counterfeit. So it goes into the investigations they did into him and how these wine forensic worker, I don't know what to call them, but they do like wine forensics, how they kind of spot a counterfeit wine because they say, okay, this label looks too new for the bottle, which looks too new for the cork. Like these things were not originally put together in the production of the wine. Sometimes people would say that a wine was from a certain year and a certain batch, like from a certain wine producer, but they actually never made that type of wine during that year. So there's a lot of like investigative work that goes into these counterfeit wines. And eventually his whole plan unravels. They find in his apartment, like hundreds and hundreds of bottles and labels and things. And they show his like whole operation. And it was just like him pouring together some wines in his kitchen. And it was super convincing because again, his palate was so good. It fooled a lot of people, but there is a scene in there where a guy tastes a wine that is supposedly, um, this guy's wine. And there's a bunch of people that think that this specific wine is legitimate because the, the thing is, is like this guy, the counterfeit guy, he would not only sell counterfeits, he did sell some real ones. And so people would try to figure out like which ones were real and which ones were fake once they figured out he was faking some of these wines. And some people who weren't as trained, they were just rich and loved wine. They sip the wine, they're like, oh, this is, this is amazing. This is definitely a real wine of his. And then the sommelier would come and he said, okay, how long has this bottle been open? And they said, uh, two hours. And he goes, yeah, this is trash. It doesn't have the breadth of flavor that it should. Like, this is not a real wine. This is just like one that he mixed up. So that is like where a sommelier can also come in handy is recognizing any counterfeit wines. Because they know so much about the production, the taste, the years, the, the regions that these wines are grown in that they can tell counterfeits. So an interesting argument though, that I thought was just fascinating is they interviewed some lawyers who were defending the guy who did the counterfeit wines. And they said, listen, a guy paid $20,000 for a bottle of wine. And if that person drank it and said, wow, this is an amazing wine. Like the rich people who bought all the wine and they thought it was real. And they say, oh my gosh, this is just the best wine I've ever had. This is so totally worth the money. Their argument was that if that is how the person who bought it feels, if they say, oh, this is so worth the money, this tastes amazing, then really is it a counterfeit wine because it got what the customer wanted? It, it fulfilled the expectations of the experience you're having with that wine. But it's not the wine that they bought. It's not, it's technically a counterfeit wine. It's not the wine that they said was in the bottle but it fulfills the customer experience. So their defense of him was that he gave the customers what they want and they wanted this amazing experience for wine and they got it. So all that to say, it's an amazing documentary. I would highly recommend going and watching it, especially if you're at all into wine. But even if you're not into wine, it's just incredible because this guy's brother was also running this huge fraudulent scheme like back in their home country and it was just crazy. So you should watch that documentary 
and maybe go and grab a bottle of wine and drink it <laughs> while you're watching it. You know, have a, have a nice glass and look at the wine legs as you're watching this documentary. So that is all I have for today. I hope you learned a lot. It This kind of makes me want to go try to become a sommelier. I think it would be super fun. Um, but thank you all for listening, and I will see you on Thursday for another State Podcast episode. Bye, everyone.